Welcome to another episode of ICU Doc Talk. Thank you for joining me. This is the, uh, our uh, 50th episode, which is great. <clears throat> um, so thanks for joining me. If you've, if you know, if you've joined in just recently or from the beginning, thanks for listening to me rant. I know it's just me talking. Uh, I always say I want to bring on guests, but I never do because I never have time to actually arrange to have guests and actually sit down with somebody. I would love to have people on this thing. I just don't have time. Um, I record this in five to 10 minute intervals, usually in my car before going into work. Um, but anyway, so, and I, and I, I do really enjoy doing it. So, uh, and you know what I was thinking, I read, I, uh, talk about books on this show, you know, every time I do a, an episode, I do a book and that's kind of like having a guest, right? So like I, it's a book that I talk about. It's kind of like having a guest and getting their opinion. So it's, I, I hope the podcast works for people and you like it. I do enjoy doing it because it's like an outlet for me to talk about stuff that I enjoy talking about. And honestly, to talk about books that I read because I, I love reading books and I love talking about the books I read. So thank you for, uh, you know, being along with me in this, uh, this, in this podcast and, you know, email me if you have ideas for this show. And, uh, you know, uh, my email is icudoctorecmo, icudoctorecmo, ecmo at gmail.com. And I usually uh, prioritize responding to emails from people that listen to this podcast. Anyway, so, so there's, that's great. Oh, and, you know, and as, as I always say, I don't make money off this. I don't ever plan to, I never have, I don't have advertisers. I don't ever plan on having advertisers. It's just a fun thing. Uh, today I'm going to talk about putting in IVs. So let's, we're going to go back to real basic stuff. Uh, so I'll talk about how, for one thing, I'll just review how to put in an IV, right? Just, just the basics, how to put in an IV. I'll talk about challenges of putting in IVs different methods of putting in IVs. And we'll also talk about, um, if I have time, putting in advanced lines, like central lines and stuff like that. So it's a basic topic, but it's, I think this is going to be useful to people because it's a, a very, very, very common skill that needs to be done. You know, putting, getting an IV or getting a lab draw, very important, ubiquitous thing that's needed in medicine all over the world. So let's talk about it. So, um, so the basics that let's, so, so the basics of putting in an IV, what, what is IV? IV stands for intravenous needle, right? I, I think there's a lot of, there's, man, there's, it's actually a huge topic. There's tons of things to talk about with an IV. I think number one, a lot of people are confused about, a lot of uh, non-medical people are confused about IVs. So an IV is, it's an intravenous catheter. It's a tiny little catheter, right? And it's flexible. So you need a, when someone comes in and puts an IV in one of your veins, it's a needle, obviously, to gain access to the IV. But then once you gain access and you get blood coming back into that needle, you then thread off a flexible catheter off of that needle into the vein, and then you remove the needle. So if you're a patient in a hospital and you have an IV in, you don't have anything sharp inside your skin. And it's probably obvious to a lot of people, but it's not obvious to many, many people. Uh, sometimes when I remind patients, like, you don't have anything sharp in there, they're like, oh, I don't. Like, it, it's not an obvious thing. Um, probably because it used to be, you know, sharp needles maybe used to stay in patients back in the back of the day, right before I was ever born. Um, but it's a flexible little catheter that you have in your vein. That's that's what it is. So um, there's there's different sizes. There's many different reasons to put an IV. Let's go over those. Wow, this is actually a huge topic. Now that I'm thinking about it, I could I could talk all day about putting in IVs. What are the reasons to put in IVs? Well, to administer medication, right, like a drip. Right. So you don't need an IV as an outpatient, right? You can take pills. I would say 
you know, as your acuity, as the sicker someone gets or the things that they need increase, they need an IV. You need IV access. So to give medications is one, right? Um, to, now this is different than a blood draw. A blood draw is where someone comes along with a needle. They find a vein, they poke it, they, they draw out blood through that, and then they remove the needle and nothing is left behind. So that's not necessarily an IV, an intravenous catheter. That's, that's a blood draw. And that's just, that's a different. Now it's the same kind of techniques of placing of trying to get that blood out of the vein. But an IV is where an actual catheter is left. It's left behind. It's taped down. And then you can hook up an IV bag. So, so, okay. So reasons to put an IV. So lab, lab draws is kind of one reason to, you know, get access to someone's vein. Administer medications. Um, to give, uh, another one is to give blood products, right? That's a, which is, you know, it could be, you could, that could be considered like a medication, but it's obviously to administer medications, administer fluids, to resuscitate a patient, um, to give antibiotics, to give chemotherapy, right? There's many different drugs. There's a thousand different reasons to put on IVs. Um, now, putting it, placing an IV is a deceptively, it seems like it's an easy thing to do. I remember when I started out learning as a medical student, it's like an easy concept. And when you watch someone put in an IV, it looks super easy because when you're experienced at it, it looks very easy. But it's actually a very, it's a difficult skill. It takes time to learn how to do. I'm going to just, it's going to be hard to explain this in words, how to, how to, I, I will talk to you about how I put in an IV and it's not, there's nothing special about how I do it. It's how, you know, most people do it. But if you are working on putting IVs, you need to go watch YouTube videos and obviously you need to learn on actual people. And you're going to you're going to hurt people, right? Meaning like you're going to poke people, you're going to infiltrate IVs as you're learning. People are going to be like, "Ah, they're going to be angry with you a little bit, maybe angry or maybe, you know, see people get angry. They're going to be irritated with you that you're not getting the IV right away. It's on your third time and they're like, "Uh, this will happen to you." Okay? It's part of learning. And that's that's actually, that's a big part of medicine is we pra- you you practice on live people, right? surgeries that are done, all these things, people are practicing on your bodies. That's all that, that is the nature of medicine. When you go and get surgery, particularly in an academic center, you're getting your people are practicing on your bodies. I know that sounds weird, but that's just the truth of it. That's, that's the nature of being in an academic setting. There's nothing unsafe about that. Um, as long as you have someone supervising and knows what they're doing, right? Anyway, as you, as you learn to put in IVs, you will, uh, have trial and error and you will have successes and failures and you'll have patients that are, that are, you know, impatient with you. And that's just part of that. That just comes with the territory of learning how to do medicine, learning the art of medicine, right? And it's it it applies to something as basic as <clears throat> putting in an IV. All right, so here's how I put an IV. So I, you got to number one, pick your appropriate gauge needle. So in the United States, at least, we have a the 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 size of the needle is inverse to the number, meaning like a twenty two a twenty four gauge needle is a tiny 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 needle, and that's a tiny IV. And then, you know, 22 is bigger and 20 is bigger and 18 is bigger and 16 is bigger and 14 is enormous, right? These are big, that's a huge IV. So as the number gets less, it's actually, that's actually the bigger gauge. It's a big needle and it's a big IV catheter going into your vein. So you got to pick the right, what, so you got to think, why do I need this IV? What size do I need that? And, and if you, if you recall physics, fluid dynamics, the, the more smaller gauge, the higher resistance you have in a system. So remember, the more length you have and the and the less radius of your the caliber of your tubing or your IV, the sl- the more the resistance and the slower a, a drip goes in. So why what I what I mean is the small if you have a small IV, it is way harder to resuscitate somebody. And when I mean resuscitate, I mean give them volume, 
give them fluid and give them blood. So if you're like, if you, if you have a big trauma case, a patient just comes in and they they had a leg amputation from a motorcycle accident, you're not putting in a 24 gauge IV. Okay. You're not doing that. That's, that's the wrong thing to do. Um, unless I guess you cannot access anything, you using the tiniest thing possible. So just so you can give them some epinephrine or something to keep them alive. Right. <clears throat> but you're putting in a large resuscitative IV. Now, in my opinion, and most people would agree with me, uh, excuse me, to resuscitate someone, you need an 18-gauge needle or bigger. And by bigger, I mean a 16-gauge or a 14-gauge. 18 at the minimum. 18 is what I would consider large bore. 16, large bore. Now, a 20 is not a large bore. But a 20-gauge, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to spit at a 20-gauge IV. A 20-gauge IV, particularly if it's in a big, if it's in a large vein, can flow quite nicely. Anyway, so you got to pick the right gauge. Why am I putting this in? Am I resuscitating this patient? Or am I just, is this just, say, in my world, anesthesia world, oh, I just need to get them off to sleep. Okay, maybe I only need a 24 gauge. I, I don't do a 24 gauge. If I, I, I do if I have to, <clears throat> like like if I can't get anything else in. Anyway, pick your right gauge. 20 gauge, perfectly great, fine balance if you don't have to resuscitate a patient. And in the United States, they're color-coded, which is nice, right? It's nice to just look at the color of an IV and be like, ah, I know the size of that IV. Particularly if, I, if I'm meeting a patient for the first time and they're very sick and I'm looking at their access. That's what access means. What kind of access do they have? If you, if you hear that in medicine, what is their access? Obviously, we're talking about their IV access. So 24 gauge is yellow, 22 gauge is blue, 20 gauge is pink, 18 gauge is green, 16 gauge is gray, 14 gauge is orange. So if I see those, I'm like, ah, I know exactly. So that's, that's a nice part of your kind of physical assessment. So you pick your gauge and now, so you're, you're like, okay, I have my IV. <clears throat> and you have your you, you got to have your IV supplies ready to go. Usually that involves your IV needle with the catheter that's already preloaded onto it. Right? That's packaged and ready to go. You need you need a uh, some sort of IV tubing that's that's already uh primed with IV fluid or you need a flush to hook up to that IV because as soon as you get that IV in, you need to hook it up to fluid to see if it flows well. Either either an IV push or you hook it up to an IV tubing. And you need some tape to hold it down and you need a tourniquet. That's, and you need some alcohol or something to clean the skin, right? I think that's, that's basic. So have all those things ready to go. You don't want to like put the tourniquet on patient's arm and then go off looking for your materials. Have it all ready to go while you approach the patient. You're ready to go. <clears throat> now, here's the, the very important part. You need to select the right vein, okay? This is very important. You need to look at the veins, see what, that, what the patient is bringing with their veins, and you need this, so, so you're selecting for vein candidacy. You need to find the right looking vein. If you pick the wrong vein, it's not going to go well. You, so you, you, know, you set yourself up for that success. Now, what does the right vein look like? Well, a good vein, you can see it with your eyeballs. Like you don't necessarily, because some veins you can't see, but you can feel them underneath. So I, before putting a tourniquet on, I look at the patient's arms, right? And hands and arms are the best place to put IVs. And it's generally a good idea to, in my opinion, to start with the hands and put IVs in the hands and then move up, go to the forearm and then go to the antecubital or the AC or the crook of the arm. The reason, the reason it's important to do that, to start with the hand, if you, if you go, by the way, you will blow IVs. So everybody, it doesn't matter how advanced you are in your career, everybody will blow an IV. I blow IVs all the time. Obviously I do it with less frequency I did when I was earlier in my training, but I still will blow IVs. Fine. Right. And I'm like an expert in putting in IVs, right? Anesthesiologists. We're like some of the main experts in putting in IVs and lines. We're like the end of the line. The only people that are, I would say, more better than us and more well-trained are interventional radiologists who use IV, who use fluoroscopy and, and uh, uh, imaging guidance to put in lines. They're the only ones. They're the end of the line. And it's, uh, it's anesthesiologists and then interventional radiologists. 
Anyway, so I'm an expert in pacing the lines on IVs. I still blow IVs. It will happen to you. It will happen to someone the day before they retire, an anesthesiologist. <clears throat> anyway, so uh, what was I saying? So you're, so the reason it's good to go with the hand first is if you blow that IV, you you can still go up the arm and you haven't blown. So, okay, if I blow an IV, if I blow a vein, blowing a vein means you go through and through the vein and you put in, you put IV fluid into the subcutaneous tissue itself, which is not harmful. It's fine. It's not a big deal. Even if you cause a hematoma, like bleeding underneath, it's fine. It's going to go away. It's not a big deal at all. You tell the patient, hey, sorry about that. It's not a big deal. You move on. It's, it's not, seriously, it does not harm the patient. Um, and it might hurt and that's harm, right? It might, it might be a little painful, but, uh, anyway, if you blow a vein up in the arm, you may not be, you can't use the veins that are downstream of that, or maybe upstream, depending on how you think about it. Meaning you can't use the vein system because all the veins feed into the same kind of vein system. So if you blow a vein up in the forearm and then you put one in, into the, in, uh, into the hand and then you start IV fluids, you might leach fluid from that blown vein that's more upstream into the arm. Does that make sense? So that's why you should start with the hand and then move your way up if you can't get it. So you start with the hand to look at the back of the hand. You're looking for veins that are straight. Okay, straight. They can't be tortuous or squiggly because you because you might be able to get access. You might get blood coming back into your IV, but they, but then you can't thread your catheter off. It'll it'll just you'll get resistance. You can't thread it off. So you cannot put them in these like little scraggly looking torturous veins, right? That many people have. It has to be straight and it has to be uh, the right size. It has to be the right size to your gauge. If you try to put, if you have an 18 gauge larger bore and there's a vein that's like, eh, it's kind of borderline. It looks a little small. I'll try it. And eh, you're probably gonna blow it. It doesn't, cause it doesn't accommodate. You have to have a vein that's big enough and accommodates the size of that IV. Does that make sense? So, so the best IV, it looks straight and it looks large enough for the, for the IV gauge that you're going to put it in. Okay. That's it. That's all there is to it. So you find your, so, okay. I find, oh, it looks great. I see a vein on a hand. It looks great. Some people have incredible veins. Like they pop out, you know, they're just screaming to have an IV placed, right? And there is something weird that you're going to relate. People that put in IVs, you're going to relate to this. If you're ever at like a party, like totally non-medical setting, and someone has just like gorgeous veins, just huge veins, you're staring at them. (laughs) You're like, man, I want to put an IV in that vein. I know it sounds weird and creepy. It's not. Uh, But you know exactly what I'm talking about. Like people that put in IVs as a part of the routine, you notice people's veins forever and weird, inappropriate social settings, you will notice their veins and you're like looking at their veins and you're like, wow, I would love to put it up. Anyway, sorry, that was weird. Uh, okay, so so you find the right vein. It's straight, it accommodates. And then you put on your tourniquet, right? And you, you plump that thing up. Now, slapping the vein around, right? If you see that in movies and stuff, that that actually works. It releases nitric, uh, it, releases, it releases vasodilating compounds from the veins itself, like the endothelial tissue if you kind of hit the vein it definitely works it it plumps up that vein it does and i do it and i say i tell the patient hey i'm gonna kind of hit you i'm gonna kind of hit your arm a little bit and they're like you know it's fine um you kind of plump that up get it as plump as possible you put the tourniquet on now there's a specific skill with putting a tourniquet on if you haven't done it yet it's not obvious but you will learn you might pull on their hair be careful as you're putting it on um you can do it without pulling their hair but you're gonna do it as you learn you're going to it's gonna happen um, anyway, so you got it, you got the tourniquet on, it's all plumped up. You wipe it down with some alcohol and then you now take out your, your IV, your catheter with the needle that's already loaded. It's already preloaded, right? These are, these are materials that are all preloaded and ready to go. Okay. Now this is the key. Okay. So let's say we're doing it on the hand. 
So with my left hand, I'm right-handed. With my left hand, I holding that patient's hand and I'm stretching that vein taut. It's very, very important to stretch the skin taut. It cannot be loose because once you go in with your needle, if it's not taut, you're not, you, it's, it's like, imagine trying to, imagine a noodle that you're trying to poke with a needle. You have a noodle on a plate. Okay. And it's all just loose and sitting there and you're just trying to strike it with a needle. It's hard. But if you were to stretch that noodle and make it taut on that plate, it would be much easier to pierce, right? That's, that's perfect corollary. Okay. So you must keep that skin taut and you're with my left hand, my right hand is going to be doing the needle. My left hand, I'm stretching that skin with my thumb and I'm getting my hand out of the way, my left hand out of the way. So I'm stretching it and I'm kind of bending my hand out of the way and I'm probably bending the hand downwards. Okay. Again, this is why you need to watch a YouTube video because this might be hard to visualize. Now I have that vein nice and nice and that skin and that surface nice and taut and it's clean and it's ready to go. Now I'm coming in with my needle and I'm holding it over hand, right? Over. I'm holding it. My hand is over the needle. I, I'm holding it between my thumb and index finger and I'm coming in. Okay. Now my angle of attack, your needle should be as parallel to the skin as possible. Okay. Parallel not perpendicular. You shouldn't be coming at an angle. You should be coming at the least, at the most, uh, I guess, acute angle to the skin as acute. Yeah. Angle to the skin as possible, parallel to the skin as possible. You want that needle and that catheter to be in the same direction and conformation as that vein, as close as possible. And you want it to be, a, you want it to hug the skin basically as you're coming in. And now my left hand, I'm trying to keep that away as much as possible. Because if it's up too much, you're getting the way of your right hand, the business end of your needle. So you get your hand, you get your left hand out of the way. Again, if you're, I'm right-handed. And now I'm coming in, okay? And I come in, I pierce the skin. And I go right into the vein. And I'm looking for bleed back. So as you get access to that vein, blood bleeds back into the chamber of the needle. And you that's the way you confirm, hey, I'm in the vein, Okay. And then this is very important. Do not thread your catheter off at this point. You need to advance one millimeter more, okay? Because the tip of that needle, which we call the bevel, is sticking out from the catheter uh, that's loaded on there. And you can get blood return from the bevel of that needle without the catheter being in the vein, if that makes any sense, okay? So you need, so you get blood draw and you're like, great, I have blood return. Now I need to advance it just a little bit more to ensure that the opening of the catheter is now inside the vein as well. Once I've done that, you advance it, you still get blood back, then you thread the needle off or the, the catheter off the needle. And you usually can do it with just one finger on your right hand, you thread it off. Sometimes you got to use your left hand to kind of get it through the skin a little bit. You thread it off, you withdraw your needle. And depending on what kind of needle you're using, it could be a, it could be one that stops blood. It could be one that keeps bleeding back. You got to know what kind of uh, IV catheter and needle you're using. There's there's many different types. There's some that if you, so some will keep bleeding back continuously. Like you get that catheter in there and it keeps bleeding back continuously and you need to staunch it with your hand, but some have a one-way valve that will stop the blood from coming back. If you don't know what you're using, if you put in that catheter and you think you have one that's bleeding back, but it's one that stops, you might think, oh, I'm not in the vein, if that makes sense. So you got to, that's what I'm saying. You got to make sure you're, uh, you are, you got to, what am I saying? You got to make sure you know what kind of needle you're using because there's many different types and you need to familiarize yourself with the different types 
of IV catheters and needles as there are because there's many types, there's many different brands, and it's and that are probably even more variety outside the United States that I'm not even used to. Okay, so you get your catheter in and you're like, okay, I think it's in. Now you need to hook up either an, a prepared tubing that's primed with IV fluid, or you need to put a flush on there. So in my, you, you, don't, you have not successfully placed an IV until you have flushed it and you have seen that it does not infiltrate or extravasate, right? So you put on a flush or an IV and you, you flush it, it should flush easily. If it starts to get all hard right where that catheter is and it starts to kind of like hard and, or indurated and it starts to kind of like swell, that catheter, that IV is bad, you must remove it. There's no redeeming it. It's over. <laughs> you need to now try again. And you remove that catheter, you need to put gauze and tape down because it'll bleed. You need to put that like a little bit of a pressure dressing down for five minutes or whatever. And you need to go try again. Okay, that's it. That's how you put an IV. It is hard. What I'm just described to you, I know is what maybe was kind of excruciating hearing hearing about it, particularly if you are very good at putting IVs. This has probably been uh, uh, frustrating <laughs> listening to. But what I just described is hard and it takes time to develop this skill. It's hard to do. Okay. So if you're learning out, if you're starting and learning, but it, it, you're not alone. It's This is a hard technique to develop. Once you know how to do it, you don't even think about it, right? I don't, my brain, it's all muscle memory at this point. I don't think about putting an IV. Now that's if everything goes well, right? So what if someone has veins that you don't see very well? What if they, you can kind of see them, but they're kind of braided under the skin, you know, or you're putting in the AC, the the antecubital fossa, like, it, it gets it gets more complicated from from there putting IVs, but that's that's the basics of putting in an IV. Okay. Now, what if so? What if you're trying for other, so they don't have anything in their arms? Well, you could you can you can put uh, veins in people's feet. Um, they don't like it, particularly if they're awake, and they don't. And sometimes uh, it, it sometimes bothers patients when they wake up from surgery and they have IVs in their feet because they're like, why was this place? They feel violated. I've noticed this. They're like, why? Ooh, what went wrong? Why did they have to put something in my feet? Because a lot of times it's, this is not a concept for some people, for patients. They're like, I didn't even know you could put IVs in the feet. And sometimes it's like routine. You know, you get someone to sleep and you're like, uh, it, you know, my anesthesia world. I'm like, I, I want another IV. And you try and try and there's nothing. And I'm like, I'll just put one in their foot and, and then we'll take it out at the end. And to me, it's, you know, it's not a big deal, but to that patient, it can be a big deal. In fact, I've had a long, long conversation. I think, I, in fact, I think I've talked about it on this podcast where a patient was so upset that they woke up with a IV in their foot. They, th- they thought something went terribly wrong, that they were going to talk to like patient complaint department. And I had a had about a 45 minute conversation with them days later about why that IV was placed and how it was actually fairly routine. Uh, and it, it wouldn't find uh, the patient was very understanding, but, but that patient was very, very upset that they woke up with an IV in their foot, uh, which is fine. I get it. I get it. Right. Um, it's hard to, ex- you can't explain all these things to a patient in the limited time that you have in the preoperative area of all the possibilities of all the things that can happen. Anyway, so, you know, the saphenous vein is a great, you know, or veins in the feet. You know, if it looks straight and it looks like it's big enough, you can put an IV in it. And sometimes you need to. Uh, another one that you need, that you can put it in if they're asleep, I wouldn't recommend it. Someone awake is the external jugular vein, the EJ. Some people have very prominent, enormous EJs riding along their neck. And they're actually pretty, it can be pretty trivial, easy thing to put an IV in there. And it's almost like a central line because it feeds right into their, uh, central venous system. It's almost like a central line. Seriously. Um, okay. But what, okay. So what about if you, let's say back in my anesthesia world, if you, okay, I can't put an IV, you know, a bunch of people have tried and uh, we can't do it. Well, that's when ultrasound comes in. Okay. Using an ultrasound to put an IV. Now 
I talked about how putting in an IV is a hard skill to learn. Putting in it with an ultrasound is even more difficult and takes even more time. And I'm just going to walk through the steps of that real quick because so there's, there's some tiny little tricks I can t teach you that will very much help you if you are trying to learn how to put in um, IVs under ultrasound guidance. So when I, when I, it's a very, as I said, it's a very hard technique to learn, but you, number one, put on the, put on the tourniquet first and then look for veins, good candidates with your ultrasound machine. You're looking around, you're looking for something that is straight, has nice caliber, just like you do with uh, normally. Um, and then once you find a good candidate, usually on the forearm, sometimes it has to be the AC. You then, I, I, with the tourniquet on, you clean the skin, obviously. And then you take your needle and you, with its catheter on and you, I actually like to make my angle very, very, uh, like as I, it's the opposite from what I told you before, right? So if you're not doing it with ultrasound, you try to, to make that angle, you try to make that needle as most parallel to your skin as possible. Here with ultrasound, I make it the most perpendicular to the skin as possible because I don't want to lose length. Usually you're going for a deeper vein. I don't want to use, I don't want to lose catheter length traveling through the skin. I want to get to the vein as soon as possible and not take a long course, if that makes any sense. Anyway, and then once once uh, I see, I visualize my needle get into the vein, right? And then as I'm doing this, people usually will be like, oh, you got blood backflow. You can, you know, suggesting like, okay, you can thread off your catheter. That is not the thing to do. The biggest mistake is what is people will, as soon as they get flash, they thread off their catheter. Well, nine out of ten times, it's gonna it's gonna buckle within the soft tissue and not go into the vein. What because because there's still a bunch of tissue and that catheter may barely be into that vein. And you, again, just your bevel is in the the bevel of your needle is in the vein. So you need to. What I do is on ultrasound, I walk it up. I walk the needle up the vein. Um, I advance the probe, advance the needle, advance the probe, advance the needle until it is very. I know it is very very deep within that vein, and then I thread off my catheter. That so I ensure that it is within. And then you hook it up and you flush it on all, all the same. What I just described to you is actually very hard to do. <laughs> it takes a long time to learn how to do that proficiently. Seriously. Uh, it, it really does. It's very simple. What I, It looks very simple and easy, but it's actually it's hard. Ultrasound Using ultrasound is, a, is, a, is its own technique, and it's very difficult to do. It's hard to do. So, okay, so, uh, you know, in the anesthesia world, if, I, if we can't get an IV pre-op so i've done all that i've you know this happens it, it you you can't get an iv you try to ultrasound ah, you can't get it well you know you can put in a central line so having a pick right a pick is what does pick stand for peripherally inserted central catheter that's that's where uh um under ultrasound usually a nurse a, a team of specialized nurses will place a, a long catheter peripherally and then it and then it extends all the way centrally um and that's awesome when p patients have that, when they're going to be admitted long-term to the hospital, it's a good idea that they have a pick placed because um, that's nice, durable access, right? Anyways, but if I'm having a patient who's in, who's, who's in the operating room, maybe, they're, hey, maybe they have a developmental delay. Maybe they can't tolerate uh, being poked with a needle beforehand. Um, well, in the anesthesia world, I can, do, I can just do a gas induction, which I'll do sometimes for adults. We do that for children all the time, right? For like little children, they many of them don't tolerate getting poked with a needle, right? They get, it's very upsetting, understandably so. So a gas induction is where we just put a, I mean, this is usually what people associate with going off to sleep with anesthesia. Like the mask comes over their fat, their mouth and nose. And then we turn on a gas that smells bad. It's usually, it smells like, you know, nail polish or something like that. It has a very chemical smell. 
um, mixed with some nitric nitrous oxide, and then you breathe and you breathe and you breathe, and then that sends the patient off to sleep. And then once they're asleep, we I, then I be, then you put in an IV as soon as before you put in a breathing tube. They're they're asleep. They're still breathing spontaneous. That's the thing with um, anesthetic volatile anesthetic gases. They, they don't cause apnea, and except at like really high doses, they don't cause apnea. So they're still breathing, and now we have the benefit of the anesthetic gases are they vasodilate you out. So your your veins almost immediately bulge out, and it's much easier to put in an IV. That's a little anesthesia. Uh, if you're not in anesthesia, that might be a little uh, trick that we don't tell you about. As soon as uh, someone's asleep, their veins bulge out, and it's easier for us to put veins uh, IVs in them. Um, but anyway, so that's always that's that's a option for us in the uh, you know para, in the perioperative world to induce someone with anesthesia to with a gas and, and put in a breathing tube. But so you know sometimes people have terrible. IV axis, right? They're a difficult stick. And, and sometimes you just need to put in a central line, you know, either a pick or, a, or a, a temporary central line placed in their internal jugular vein or, or, a, you know, subclavian or their, or not usually to want, want to do femoral. I mean, I could talk about, um, central axis a little bit, but actually I, I, I want to talk about that right now. There's something else I want to talk about, which is infiltrated IVs. So, um, as I, I, I alluded to it earlier, infiltrated IVs, like when you notice them right away, it's not a big deal, right? You're like, oh, it's infiltrated. You take out the IV. You know, you, you give a little, you put in an IV and you give a little flush of saline and, it, and the, the skin bulges out and you're like, oh, it's infiltrated. And the patient might be like, ow, you know, or you cause a hematoma. Ow, that's fine. You tape it up. It's not a big deal. Here's when an infiltrated IV is a very big deal. So uh, in- infiltrated IVs can, when they go undetected in the operating room. So I, one thing I, I, I like to teach a lot is that, so in the OR, we put in, so we put in, so we put in like so two IVs. Say there's a long case, we put in two IVs. And then the arms are tucked under sheets and then sterile drapes go up and we no longer have ac- direct access to those arms in the anesthesia world. Our IV tubing is going under those sheets and we're giving medications. So at any time, um, IV, those IVs can infiltrate. They can, they can start dripping medications into the subcutaneous tissue and not into the vein. That can, that can happen at any time. It's an inherent risk of anesthesia. I wish I could say it, it. Oh, I can guarantee it won't happen. I cannot. IVs can infiltrate at any time, unfortunately. What can happen is if we're continuously giving medications and we don't recognize that it's, that it's infiltrated, we can continuously drip medication to someone's like arm. And sometimes... You can get in, in anesthesia, we get this false sense that, oh, the IV is working because it's dripping. No, you can have an infiltra- infiltrated IV. This is my main point. An IV can be infiltrated and still drip. Absolutely. I've seen it a, mil- a million times because it's dripping continuously into the soft tissues. Particularly if there's, you know, a, a, lot, a lot of times when people get older, their skin gets uh, like looser, right? And it can, it can accommodate, like an arm can just expand and expand and expand and it can accommodate a bunch of fluids that are dripping in and medications so what can happen is f- fluids get are dripping into the arm during a surgery and it's not detected we don't we don't we don't see it and then you're giving vasoactive substances like phenylephrine or or vasopressin in that arm and you're giving and a bunch of anesthetics or maybe even paralytics are getting into that arm and then the drapes come down and you look at the arm and it's total that IV's been infiltrated for hours and the arm is totally swollen and it's blistering. This can happen. This can happen. Um, usually the arm is fine. Um, what 
the the right thing to do in this situation is you immediately get an ortho like a a hand surgeon to come and look at the arm make sure that you don't have compartment syndrome which you almost never do make sure it's okay um and then if you've and then you go over what has been given through this IV. If any vasoactive substances have been given, you need to do subcutaneous injection of phentolamine, which is an alpha blockade, which helps to relax those capillaries. Because you don't want those capillary beds to have a bunch of high-dose vasoactive that, it's, that, that can kill the tissue, basically. That's the concern. It can kill the, the, the soft tissue. It can kill it, and it can die off, and you can have major, major injury from it. So this is just my whole point. Infiltrated IVs, this is, this is, a, this is a big concept of anesthesia. Small things over a short amount of time may not cause injury, right? Let's say you have like a little cap, like a syringe that's accidentally left under a patient's shoulder blade for an hour while they're asleep. Is it going to cause uh, uh, skin breakdown? No, very unlikely. It's not going to cause a lot of harm. It's not, it's, a big, it's, it's not good that it was there, right? But it's probably not going to cause a lot of harm. But you put that same syringe under a patient for seven hours that's not moving, you're going to cause break, breakdown and harm. It's the same thing with an infiltrated IV. These small things that are oh 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 no no big deal we've figured out infiltrated and then but you multiply that over hours now you're causing now you can cause major harm um, and that can happen with an infiltrated IVs that's so the main thing is do not if you're in anesthesia whether you're a resident nurse anesthetist or whatever uh, don't fool yourself if a if an IV is dripping well but it's not quite but you're giving medications like say they're hypertensive and you're giving pain meds and you're or they're hypotensive and you're giving phenyl and it's just not having that effect abandon that IV stop using it. Um, that's why it's good to place two IVs for, for longer surgeries. Anyway, that's all I'm going to say about, uh, placing IVs. It's a huge topic. I could, I could do another episode about it. Let me know if you liked it. Um, let's move on to a book. All right. I am so excited to talk about this book. I actually recorded this podcast just to talk about this book. <laughs> I finished it like two weeks ago and I just, I just wanted to talk about it. It's the whole reason I'm, I'm, I'm recording this. Um, so I'm talking about battle cry of freedom by James McPherson. It's about the civil war. It's absolutely amazing. So I'm, I'm no civil war buff. I'm not very knowledgeable about it. So I wanted, I wanted to learn more specifically about the politics and the culture and the war during that time. So I, so I researched good civil war books and I picked this one up, which is part of the Oxford library. And it did not disappoint. This, this book provides not only the, like the war strategium and battles, which is something I I care about less, like war battling. I I don't, I don't care so much about that. I do find it interesting, but this also, it provides the political contextualization about how, how all this crazy history fits together. After coming away from this book, I'm stunned about, still, about what an insane country the United States was then and continues to be today with new reincarnations of the same political and social turmoil that birthed the Civil War. This is a perfect book to read for people looking to learn about the Civil War that don't know a lot. It's perfect. So I I have a lot to say about this book. Um, The Civil War was obviously about slavery, despite ridiculous revisionists who like to pretend otherwise. Just don't even listen to those arguments. It's, it's absurd. In my opinion, the three-fifth compromise, right, in the Constitution did little to diminish the strength of the southern states. People like to say, like, oh, that was actually anti-slavery, the, the three-fifth compromise. No, it wasn't. It only served, what was the impact? It served to legitimize the practice of slavery, written into the Constitution, and it helped the South hold undue political power. That was the impact. Huge economic growth in the 1850s created more tension between the North and South, and it accelerated the slavery problem, which had been around since the country's inception, obviously. Americans, Americans um, got the edge over Europe by simply having more land, more wood, more labor, um, higher fertility rates, and a more educated class. Right? A lot, all of what I just said explains 
Americans edge over the over over the world largely <laughs> since then. Industrialization was taking off in the north and the south, but the south got a little behind. Wage labor was actually a pretty new concept according to the author here coming in at this time and many Americans didn't like it and they saw it as antithetical to republicanism and being, you know, being a master of your own labor. There were also large shifts in the cultural attitudes of women's roles, role and women's rights movements was really starting to kind of start at this time. Lots of there's lots of preamble in this book to the war. Uh, a lot of it had to do with President Polk stealing a ton of land from Mexico and Native Americans and then the South wanting to legalize slavery in that new land. All this stuff is happening before. A lot of this book takes place before the Civil War, which is awesome. The South was basically obsessed with acquiring new slaveholding land. And it backed even several bids by mercenary groups to capture Cuba and other parts of Latin America to start slavery colonies there. Uh, the Wilmot Proviso was an unsuccessful 1846 proposal in Congress to ban slavery in the newly acquired territory during the Mexican-American War. And the South didn't like that one bit. During this time, lots of different social attitudes about slavery were pervasive, including militant abolitionists. Uncle Tom's Cabin, which I've actually never read, which I'm surprised I've never read it, um, it came out at this time and it blew people's minds. It was extremely culturally impactful. And of course, the book was banned in the South. <laughs> um, lots of political and legislation maneuvering was happening uh, pre-Civil War at this time. The, the Kansas-Nebraska Acts created the two states with uh, those two states, but it repealed the Missouri Compromise of 1820, which prevented northern expansion of uh, slavery of, into the into the north. And then you have the Dred Scott Supreme Court decision of 1857, which prohibited black people from ever being citizens. For whatever gains there were for the South, there were always northern abolitionist backlash, which helped the new radical Republican Party. Right, that the Republican Party was born at this time, and it was very radical and very progressive. And it helped the Republican Party gain uh, relatively, right? It helped uh, the it helped all these things helped the the s Southern strength helped the Republican Party gain more political control uh, when they fractured from the Whig Party. The 1857 Depression mixed things up, and then the Homestead Act also riled up the South, who didn't like the idea of Northern folks spreading their you know non-slavery heathen ways across the country, and all this um, pre-war drama and culture wars, they really culminated with John Brown, who was a militant abolitionist. <clears throat> he stormed Harper's Ferry Arsenal with like five other guys in what appeared to be a very ill-conceived attempt to liberate black people in the South with like a slave revolt. He even tried to get Frederick Douglass in on this <clears throat> to, to, storm, to, to storm the arsenal, and Frederick Douglass was like, this is crazy, you shouldn't do this. So he did it anyway, John Brown. He was, he stormed it, he held it, I think, for a few hours, but was immediately, like, sieged <clears throat> and arrested, and then was sentenced to death for treason. In his courtroom, in his trial, his courtroom speeches are clearly not the words of an unhinged man, but they're the words of someone who knew exactly what they were doing and understood the cultural power of martyrdom. Let me just read you uh, just an excerpt from his last final speech before he was put to death <clears throat> this is him he says this court acknowledges as i suppose the validity of the law of god i see a book kissed here which i suppose to be the bible or at least the new testament that that teaches me that quote all things whatsoever i would that men should do to me i should eat, do even so to them it teaches me further to remember that 
them that are in bonds, as bound with them. I endeavored to act up to that instruction. I say I am yet too young to understand that God is any respecter of persons. I believe that to have interfered as I have done, as I have always freely admitted, I have done on behalf of his despised poor, was not wrong, but right. Now, if it is deemed necessary that I should forfeit my life for the furtherance of the ends of justice and mingle my blood further with the blood of my children and with the blood of millions in this slave country whose rights are disregarded by wicked, cruel, and unjust enactments, I submit, so let it be done. Incredible. Chilling. <laughs> I, I, what an incredible, amazing words. John Brown knew exactly what he was doing, and very quickly after his execution, he became a cultural icon. Uh, he was an immediate folk hero in the North and a boogeyman to the South. And then <clears throat> Abraham Lincoln was elected uh, in 1860. A big realization for me that kind of set in reading this is that the Civil War started not necessarily because of threats of the South to secede. Oh, they did, they did threaten that all throughout the 1850s and probably before that. Uh, and they didn't, the Civil War didn't start because the North finally said, hey, we're coming to abolish slavery. It's because... The South hated the progressive Republican Party. <laughs> and the new president, Abraham Lincoln, they were afraid of him. And they didn't like him. And they loathed him. And that's why they finally went to war. <laughs> that was like the sparking thing that, that started it. So the election of Lincoln is what finally prompted the South to revolt. The Confederate Constitution was drafted three months after his election. And then the matchstick was when Lincoln decided to try to protect Fort Sumter from the South. That was it. War finally, Civil War was, you know, officially here. The author appropriately spends a lot of this book on the war and its battles. There are so many ups and downs on both sides, and many, many times where it each seemed like they were going to prevail, only to have it swing back the other way. I mean, it happened over and over again. Throughout all of this, there are bitter political fights in the North with the quote, peace Democrats who want, wanted an armistice. There was the black Republicans who supported Lincoln, and then the more radical abolitionists who didn't think Lincoln was doing enough. So tons of political turmoil in the North itself. There were uh, a lot of draconian measures that limited free speech in the North. To you know, There was race riots. There was fear-mongering among whites that Lincoln wanted to free slaves and enslave the white race, You know, very similar to like the replacement theory today. It's very similar. There's lots of echoes, right? What seems to differentiate the North and South during this time seems to be a lot of political turmoil and internal conflict on the North and more political cohesion in the South, which McPherson seems to imply was the South's undoing because their leadership didn't stay agile enough to adapt like Lincoln did in the North. That's the, the author's assertion. The Union often had the upper hand of the war because of just more sheer numbers and also a superior Navy. A river blockade really helped starve trade in the South as well. The South, early on, bet that they could get Britain to intervene in the war if they stopped their cotton trade, but it just wasn't in the cards for the South. Britain and France decided to not get involved, and they feared fallout with the Union more than the loss of the cotton trade. No European power ever recognized the Confederacy as more than just a belligerent. The Confederacy started to go broke and went you know, with a fiat currency and printed a bunch of money that made things a lot worse. At one point, the South had 9,000% inflation to the North's only 80% inflation. There were bread riots in the South where women just straight up looted and mob stores just to feed their families. You compare this to what was going on in the North. 
what they were starting to do. They instituted a new income tax. They funded higher education. They enacted the Homestead Act. They invested in railroad infrastructure and other social programs. The Union Congress at this time basically drafted the blueprint for what is now modern America. Like, it's, where, it's kind of where a lot of this stuff started. And then at some point during the war, Lincoln realized that emancipation and abolishment was necessary to end the war rather than an armistice. But he had the wisdom to know that there was a political timing to these things, so he waited for the emancipation until a string of Union victories. And then the Union capturing Vicksburg and Gettysburg were clearly the turning point in the war. These, this book really does an incredible job talking about Grant and Robert E. Lee and a slew of other big-time military leaders like McClellan and Stonewall Jackson. I'm not really getting into that, but it's all in this book. The shocking thing was that the war just kept on going after Gettysburg, and so many more men died that didn't need to. Um, Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, refused to surrender and even fled the Confederate capital in Richmond after the, the Union finally took it over. The battles and carnage went on long after it was obvious the Confederacy was doomed and that their economy was absolutely devastated. The war did result in a legacy of a new federal government that, in my opinion, actually did help average Americans, namely federal taxation with the 16th Amendment, a national bank, a welfare program for recently freed slaves called the Freedmen Act. What we got at the end was also a slew of new amendments with the abolishment of slavery in the 13th and the beginning of the Reconstruction Era, which would usher in a great time of racial harmony. That's a joke, obviously. Racial harmony did not come in after this. Reconstruction period was very brief, and then the South re uh, readapted with Jim Crow era, um, you know, authoritarianism. It didn't, no racial harmony has ever existed in the United States. It's an absolute, including to today, right? If you believe that, I don't know what to tell you. Well, I do know what to tell you, but I don't have time to explain to you. <laughs> um, the the bigoted elements in this country constantly regroup and they keep doing their thing and they keep doing it today. The exact same political dynamics at play during the Civil War era are going on right now. Yeah, it's a new iteration, but specifically it's the opposition between progressivism and conservatism and opposition between the labor class and an aristocracy. Those two forces, I think, just drive everything. Those two forces, those two opposing forces, the, the opposition between progressivism and conservatism and opposition between the labor class and the aristocracy. They just drive everything, and it's going on right now. Same dynamics. Anyway, phenomenal book. I highly recommend it. Battle Cry of Freedom by James McPherson. I think it was written in the 80s. It's, uh, it's fairly long. It was about, it's about, it's about 850 pages. Yeah, it's a long book, but well worth your time. All right, that's all the time I have today. Um, I can't get into get to any emails or answer questions, but um, uh, you know, thanks for listening, and uh, I'll keep doing this as always. Please leave a review if you haven't already, and share the podcast, and um, email me at icudoctorecmo at gmail .com if you have any topics you want to bring up. And uh, thanks for listening.